0: Welcome to episode number 10 of Upstate and Litigate. I'm John DeGaspers.
1: And I'm Derek Spada. Today we're going to be discussing legal writing and all aspects that go along with it. But before we jump into it, let's talk about a few recent victories for our clients.
0: Let's give our opening statements here. Noteworthy. Well, I just had that medical malpractice trial uh, that uh, in part settled and in part went to verdict. So that was exciting. It felt good to get back into the courtroom uh, we took the fight to a psychiatrist and to a hospital, um, and I think got a great result for our client. It was a sad case involving a suicide and anti the use and side effects of antidepressant drugs. Um, we allege that our our client 's husband, who who is now deceased, uh, was suffering the adverse side effects of antidepressant drugs, and that his psychiatrist uh, in a mental health unit at a hospital failed to properly diagnose his condition and continued him on the offending uh, antidepressant drugs in this case it was specifically a classification of drugs known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and uh, consequently as a result of the psychiatrist's failure to diagnose um she she discharged her her client, uh, the deceased uh, spouse of, of of our client, and um, uh, he took his life within 24 hours of discharge. So it, it was a really sad case. The deceased was a kind of a you know average Joe, hardworking American. He was a steel worker, uh, had three children, had an intact marriage greater than 30 years. So it was really uncharacteristic for him to do something as horrible as take his own life and um, the case settled it was a good result settled for uh, almost a million dollars and the clients were very pleased so it was I felt like it was a good cause I felt like we brought some transparency to uh, the relative ineffective science behind antidepressant drugs so I was proud of that case. How about you? you have anything recent that is um, worthy of sharing? I've
1: had, I've had a handful of or, uh, call ordinary cases, but one that's a little different than, uh, than what I've had in the past. I had a, a case against a health insurance company for a helicopter bill. And uh, so our, we, we have a client who was injured, and he was airlifted from a hospital, from one hospital to another, a smaller local hospital up to Albany Med. And uh, well, apparently it costs a lot of money to uh, have one of those Medevac helicopters come and pick you up. It's about $80,000. And uh, so the, 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 the child's parents' health insurance company uh, denied the claim and refused to pay for the bill. And the basis that they were saying as to why they weren't paying was that um, there's some exemption in the policy, which I've never heard of before, but if, um, if a patient is airlifted from the scene of an accident to a hospital directly, they won't They won't pay for the bill, which doesn't quite make sense, but that's what the policy said. But in this case, he wasn't actually airlifted from the scene of the accident. He was transported by ambulance from the scene of the accident to a local hospital and then airlifted. So the policy did cover secondary transportation by air, and that's how I got them to pay. So they agreed to to pay the bill, which um, the the medevac company was trying to get paid from the parents for the better part of two years, um, but after I, after I filed a lawsuit, went back and forth with some negotiations, they, uh, they agreed to
0: pay. So that's, a, that's an interesting case because I think a lot of people get screwed over by their health insurance companies. And I think I've handled at least uh, two in my career. You've, you've handled this one at least. So it's an interesting phenomenon, and uh, it'd be good if we could take the fight to health insurance companies more often. And I will also say because of that case – I recently uh, encountered a similar experience, and we may have another one for the helicopter ride. This one wasn't as expensive. This was only $65,000 for the... That's
1: a bargain. That's a
0: bargain. That's right. They were running (laughs) discounts that day. Must have been like Amazon Prime Day or something like that. Uh, All right, Derek. So let's go to our case-in-chief. I think you own this topic um, it's an important topic, maybe uh, not as exciting as some of our case stories, but for legal nerds like you and I, this is our everyday life. So today we're going to talk about legal writing and keeping that legal writing in-house and why that, why uh, Bosch and Keegan is different from other personal injury law firms here in the Hudson Valley.
1: Yeah, it's a topic that most attorneys never talk about. You don't hear any, any ads on television or radio or the internet of anyone Bragging about what a great legal writer they are, but it's a really important aspect of almost every case. And if you're, you know, if you're an attorney who's either you know, not a good writer or sloppy when it comes to writing, uh, that opens up a big hole in, you know, in many of your cases. Uh, things happen along the way in in cases. For example, there's there's motions, there's summary judgment motions, other motions to dismiss, and what that really means is the Defense is trying to have the case dismissed and saying that the case doesn't meet certain legal elements for a variety of reasons on a, you know, on a case by case basis so if your proof falls short, then the court can dismiss your case before you ever get to trial and you know that you know that happens I would say those attempts happen maybe in ten to twenty percent of the cases across the board where the defense files a, a motion you know, some of those motions have merit I would say, and some have not so much merit. Some are done because the other side is paid by the hour, frankly. But uh, we still have to oppose those motions and convince the court and the judge um, and the judge's law clerk as well who's reading the papers that the case should not be dismissed. Yeah.
0: And I think there's certain types of cases where we see motions more frequently than others. For example, I always say in a premises liability case, if you get hurt on somebody else's property, You might expect a motion for summary judgment because there are standard issues that apply to almost all cases, like whether the property owner knew of a dangerous condition, that are ripe for motion practice. However, there are other types of cases where the fact pattern is so crazy, and uh, it's maybe just the actions of the parties, like whether somebody should have seen someone else as they're pulling the pallet around the corner, you maybe would not expect motions on those cases. And so as lawyers, you and I know when we take on a case that we're probably going to get a motion to dismiss on this case, but we take it anyway because, well, first of all, if we didn't take many of these cases, we'd be broke and we wouldn't be able to help our clients, right? But um, we know and understand that certain types of cases will likely uh, enter a motion practice phase and we nonetheless take that risk on it's part of the excitement of the case i think is is understanding what motion practice might come about what issues are going to need a legal decision uh, that are not so much factual based so i try to pre- tell my clients at the outset hey listen i'll take your case but there's a chance you may get dismissed on motion um Sometimes I'll put that in the initial engagement letter so that they know a year from now when that happens. Don't, don't freak out.
1: Yeah, and the, the way that I, you know, I think that all of us approach our cases is that that, 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 that that motion is always in your mind, in the back of your mind as the case progresses. Absolutely. So you have to get every element of proof, you know, in your, I'll say in your file, before that motion comes.
0: The yeah, motion absolutely. Usually,
1: the motion usually comes later on. So you're able to do depositions and go through discovery before that happens. Yeah. And you have to mentally you know, more or less check off all of the elements of proof that you need yeah. along the way so that when the motion eventually does come, you have everything in place to oppose it. Because if the motion comes in and you're missing some elements of proof, then it's much harder to oppose.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think about the motion for summary judgment more than I think about trial. Because I'm good on my feet, right? Like, I can, I can figure the trial out once discovery is done. All I want to do is beat that motion for summary judgment. And I also know that in 9 out of 10 cases, as long as you can defeat the motion for summary judgment, what's going to happen? They're going to settle. The case is yeah. going to settle anyway, right?
1: And, and if they don't settle, everything is in place for your trial. Yeah. Because you, you know, by doing the motion, you, you're laying everything out in, in an order that Makes sense, more or less.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think about the motion. And again, I think you, you have to know in what context are you litigating, right? Premises liability cases, product liability cases, many different types of medical malpractice cases, and then your soft tissue autos. You're going to get a motion. So you have to be able to defeat that motion. Sometimes, sometimes you know it's going to be a questionable call. And other times, uh, you have more, com- more confidence. Now, this motion for summary judgment that we've been discussing, if it, it, is, it is the most, I think, uh, dispositive motion there is, right? Dispositive meaning it, it, it will decide a factor of the case or maybe result in dismissal altogether. Um, if you lose, let's say you lose a motion for summary judgment, case is dismissed, What do we do at Bosch and Keegan? Do we abandon that client and say, thanks, but sorry? Or do we take an appeal and try to breathe life back into that case?
1: We take the appeal.
0: Just about every time. Yep. Every time, (laughs) whether it makes us money or not. In fact, I, uh, we have this discussion often, right? That, that they're not always,
1: well, there's, there's something about taking an appeal in almost every case or, you know, it's multifaceted in that when you take an appeal of course you want to win the appeal that's you know, your foremost objective um, and I've, I've done enough appeals in my you know my career that I know how to do them like backwards and forward uh, but with your appellate writing you need to take it to the next level to convince the appellate division to reverse the case if you're you know, if you're the one who's taking the appeal um, but uh, I'll say a side effect of taking these appeals is that the judges who decide the motions know that we take appeals. And if a case is, I'll say borderline, maybe one that could go either way. I think more often than not, it goes our way because they know that we'll take the appeal. They know that we, that we won't give up.
0: That's an interesting perspective. I think that, I think that you are most certainly right. I appear in front of judges all the time that know that Derek, Derek takes the appeal. Right. So I think you're right. And I think too, especially on those close calls, as we know, a motion for summary judgment is considered a drastic remedy, right? The court system as a whole has a public policy whereby we want our cases to go to trial. By we, I don't mean Bosh and Keegan. I mean, as a society, we prefer that juries decide the merits of cases not judges. And so I think you're right. On close calls, the tie goes to the plaintiff on a motion for summary judgment uh, or, the, app, or, or yeah, the, the, the non-moving party for the most part. Now, the, there's, I think that we, there's some other greater good in these appeals. And, and we have these high-level conversations sometimes. We joke. Some of these appeals, if you were to look at that file... On an hourly basis, we probably don't make a lot of money. But sometimes the appeals have a public policy effect. And we take those appeals not because it's going to make the client money necessarily, not because it's going to make Bosch and Keegan money, because oftentimes they don't. We take the appeal for the impact that it has on society as a whole and the laws that affect our everyday lives and, and the cases we handle. And I, so how many times now have you gone to the Court of Appeals? Three? Three. Yeah. Three
1: times. And every time I walked in as a loser, I lost in the appellate division. Right. And every time, you know, there's three times I won. I got the case reinstated by the highest court in New York State and that, after losing at the appellate division right. and going up to the highest court. But, but those,
0: those three cases in particular, but really any appellate decision, has a meaningful impact on the body of law that governs our behavior out in the world, the way we handle our cases, the procedural um, uh, elements of, of these cases. And so, um, you know, I think it's important not just for that individual client that we breathe life back into those cases, but it's important to the greater good. Um, now, you've handled hundreds of appeals,
1: yeah uh, somewhere about 125 or probably over over 125 yeah not 125 130
0: that's extraordinary i i go around bragging that you're the uh most successful uh appellate lawyer north of new york city and the only reason i say that is just because you know there's probably some nerd down in new york city who's got you beat but but i know that no one in upstate new york does not in civil not in civil practice maybe the, um uh, Joan Lamb from the District Attorney's office. Yeah, she's on a UB. lot of
1: a lot of criminal appeals. Yeah, but uh, it's yeah, that's a different ball game. Criminal and civil are different on appeal.
0: But you, your talents uh, with respect to appellate writing and your knowledge of the appellate process, and also just the law, because you learn the law when you're writing these motions or opposing motions and writing these appeals. Uh, I think sets Bosch and Keegan apart from other law firms because I think other law firms are forced to farm out their appellate work. There's Appellate, appellate work is part of any good and thriving uh, personal injury practice because when you take as many cases as we do, you will lose some, right? Because these are challenging cases. And,
1: and uh, about, about half of those are, are the other side taking the appeal, sure, too. Sure, that's so true, too. Even even you're, you're not you, always a loser, yeah, right? right? You might win. You still have to do the appeal.
0: Yeah, but you're... You know, so other law firms have to farm that out. And what that means is, typically, it costs the client money, right? Because many law firms do not consider uh, that one-third legal fee in, uh, as part of the appellate practice. So often the client incurs additional fees to hire that appellate lawyer. Uh, but at Bosch & Keegan, you, you handle all of the appeals in-house, and we don't charge extra for it. Yep. And I think it also means we're more efficient about it. We get, we get them done sooner. And it's our law firm that the judges know about. Uh, so I, I think it's critically important. And
1: also, I think it's tough when you farm out an appeal for the outside appellate attorney to pick up a file, which was well, all digital yeah. now, no papers, but I'm yeah. saying you know, to, to read this from scratch and try to make sense of it without knowing anything about the case. Right. When it's in-house, even if it's a different attorney in the firm who's handled it, I still typically know something about the case, right. and I, I can learn the facts really well just because I've already known something about it. And right. I can also talk to the attorney who's you know in the same building or the building next door to me
0: about you know about the case. That's interesting too, because um, I pride myself on not losing, so I don't have yeah. many appeals. <laughs> but uh, no, no, but you know, you 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 help me on my my appeals, and we do we talk about it. And we talk about it in detail. And I have like a, 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 when when this happens, a really strong grasp of the facts, the nuanced sort of procedural histories or or issues that were addressed on motion. And I'm sure that that probably empowers you to some extent with respect to to the appellate work that you're doing. Just as a general principle, because I'm curious, you're a much better writer than I am, but we have different styles, and I, I would say to young law students out there, understand that no style of legal writing is the same, I think, that we're all different creatures. We don't, you don't all have to be great writers. If you're not a great writer, you have to know that, though, and find a place in the legal world where your, your uh, inability to write well um, will be camouflaged by some other talent, right? Um, but I'm curious, when you, when you approach emotion, just briefly, how do you go about it? And I'll, I'll share how I do it, but how do you go about it?
1: Uh, I'll say my approach has changed over the years. Okay. And so what I do now, which I, I don't know if I'd recommend doing it this way, but the way that I do it is I look at only the head points of law from the other side's papers. Mm-hmm. So I'll go through their papers and just look at, at – like, you know, the, the points are like this point one, which is in bold text and further down is point two in bold text. So I'll I read, I read the head points and then I'll write my papers to just address those topics
0: without reading without the reading substance the of their right. papers. I would,
1: I, yeah, I, I won't read the substance of their papers. I'll just go through and I'll just call it. I'll, I'll like play my game, if you will. Like, where yeah. you're, you're, OK, you're I like outside. that. I do then, something similar. Then once I'm basically about done with my papers. Then I'll go back and read the substance of their papers. And then I'll tack on in my points, sure. my counterpoints to their points. Yeah. Because if you, if you read their papers, I find sometimes you can almost, you can get off like lost off in the weeds or get bogged down. Well, you get, in these-
0: you, I think the problem is, and I read this in an article early on in my career, don't adopt their argument. Like don't further their points, right? Make right. yours. And I find if it's like in, in, Paragraph seven, the defendant 's attorney argued blank 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 it 's like why would you say that in your papers right like that the, the, they said it now, yeah. say your own thing right so yeah. I, I agree do you um, you know I think one of your talents is you are really good at scouring the record and you you find where periods are missing and you know dates and and nuanced facts i 'm kind of more of a uh, look at the greater picture kind of guy. But I, but I think in in motion practice and appellate work, the the ability to, to uh, hone in on the finer details is 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 incredibly uh, powerful, uh, a good tool to have.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of time, you know, to to get there. But you know, once you're there, I you know, I suppose you can just pick up the pace, and it kind of comes to you, you, know, as you as you read through the, you know, the volumes of paper that go along with any appeal.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I agree. I think that you have a talent that not many lawyers have. It's a great talent to have. It, um, you know, it, it. I think distinguishes you from most of the lawyers in the community, even myself. Like I am not as uh, multi-talented as as you are. Because I'm not doing it. I've I've, I've handled (laughs) one appeal in my life. I won and I tiki barbered that thing. I I dropped the mic. I left and that's it. Uh, You know, I could, I can foresee though, you know, because a lot of this is territorial. We know that. Right. So it's like if I ask you to write a, write an appeal, I would love to argue them. But it's like at that point, it's like, you know, I've made it yours and, and, you know, you probably want to see that through so I could see at some point having somebody write appeals for me because I don't really do a lot of appellate practice um you know I I get my cases resolved but I would like to argue them but uh you know so at some point I'll hire somebody to do that for me I also think that and I think you'll be able to speak to this better than me your writing and I say this respectfully is dry as fuck Right. Like no one wants to read that except lawyers and judges. Right. Yeah. If you were to write like a blog, we're going to, we're going to scratch our eyes out. But when you write law, you have such a simplistic way of making your point in short sentences, active voice. um, And so the level of clarity that you bring to legal writing. I think is really unmatched. And again, I, I speak to the young law students out there. You can say less or say more with less, right? I mean, few words, active voice, and, and keep it simple. And that, I think, is really where your talent lies. I don't know if you know that or not, but when I, you know, if I look at one of your old motions or, or, or briefs to, um, you know, use it in a, in a similar case, it's just like, oh, my God, that is so simple. And then, of course, you string cite the hell out of every point you make. I mean, so you, you, you find these cases that, that uh, you know, probably many people don't.
1: Yeah, that's, that's something else that's important with legal writing is being able to do the research. Yeah. And if you're just doing you know, the writing, someone who's a good writer might not necessarily be a good legal writer if they can't pair it with the research. And then it comes down to, to knowing how to enter the search terms and knowing what terms to enter. And that, I think you have to know the law to know what terms you want to put together and how to put them together, right? Because it doesn't work quite like Google. It's gotten you know, it's changed over the years, so it's more like Google now. But it seems to work better if you use terms and connectors like a Boolean search, and then if you put the right terms and connectors in the, you know, between the right words, of course, then you'll find like a jackpot of cases. Yeah. If you enter the wrong
0: terms, you're lost. I I think I think you're right about. It's ha- I think it's hard to be a good legal writer if you can't meld the research and law to your writing um, or if you can't find what you need out there i think I think you're right i I think i'm good at legal research I, you know oftentimes i'll ask you to help me find something and and you know you you your legal research i think is excellent but oftentimes like i'm i'm coming across the same stuff, but i don't have the ability to then take that uh, plethora of information case law statutes that I found and you know string cite them like you do and it, which is really powerful when you're a judge and you're like I don't know about this one and then spotted dumps like 30 cases on you in a string site it's like well what am I gonna do with that you know like I, I gotta side with him I I can't do that like I don't I don't have the the the, the ability to download that information so um uh but again you know, I, I think I'm doing all right in litigation. I'm good at legal research. I'm fair at writing, but um, you know, I don't have the I don't have the credentials that you have uh, up in in the appellate courts of the state of New York. I think another interesting thing uh, about legal writing and legal research is, you know, you're talking about how to search, right? But like, I'm curious when what 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 do you use do you rely primarily on case law do you go to secondary sources to learn a little bit about the background on these legal topics and, and then go to case law what do you, how do you go uh, about it almost always
1: case law yeah. and then I'll go to secondary sources if it's some more obscure principle of law okay. then I'll you know then I'll rely more on a secondary source um, or if it's just not a common issue yeah you know then I'll I'll hit the secondary sources as well okay. but I'll, if it's more of I'll call it more of a standard issue that yeah, you know, that comes up again and again in cases, then I'll,
0: I, I tend to stick with case law. Okay. I, I, when I research a legal topic, because a lot of what we're doing is reacting to instincts, right? Client comes in, they're hurt or they're offended in some way. Your instinct is like, okay, that sounds like an injustice, right? Or it sounds like it could be a case, but I've never confronted that exact issue before. I go right to Westlaw and I research it. And I and, and let me see if there's a cause of action here. I usually start at the secondary source, get some, you know, New York juror on it, get some basic understanding of the overview, and then I'll say to the client, okay, listen, I think we got something. Let's get to work. Let's start building the file out, getting the evidence together, and then, you know, I'll let the 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 law sort of soak in over the course of time. I think that's one of the best parts of our job is that constant. Coming from the real world over to the law and seeing if we can't take what's happening over here and, and applying it to the law. I love that. Yeah. I do a lot of my legal research at night on the couch in front of the TV. It's sort of a way for me to relax but yet still be productive. And I'll just, I'll get in it. I'll go deep into the weeds at Westlaw at night. Yeah. Are you, you uh, doing most of your legal writing uh-huh. and research during the business day?
1: Um. If I'm, like, in the midst of, like, a bigger motion or project, yeah, but other times I'll do it either, you know, in the evening sometimes, but also first thing in the morning Okay. when I first wake up. All right. You know, if I get up early, I'll spend a little time on that. But, you know, my my favorite thing is when when I'm researching it, topic and I find one of my own cases. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh. Which and then at the time like I I, I don't realize that it's my it's case because I, yeah. because with, with the research you can jump right to the, the terms that you searched. Yes. So I'll jump to the terms and I'll be like in the middle of, of the case. Right. And then I'm like, oh so this sounds really good. And gee, yeah. I'm like oh, that's that's my case. Like, oh, yeah. You
0: know what's funny? That that is how you and I are different. I don't even I don't even look at the law firms, you know, like you're <laughs> you're so in tune with all of the details i'm just looking for the primary points of law and i'm not saying i'm doing it right but that that just goes to show why we are are different lawyers but also i think that's in part why you know we work well together is because we have different talents and and uh you know we can go to one another and get more work done and help more people I, I want to make two points of, about um, research and, and I also want to talk about lunch and writing. This is my final point about legal writing. It's something I find fascinating. It could be a Friday. Derek has gotten two adjournments on whatever it is, the appeal or the motion. Time is ticking. It's a crazy day. Derek is suited up. We know he's in that like writing mode. Don't disturb him. But when noon comes, he's going to eat. <laughs> so that motion could be due. That appeal could be due. Friday of 5, it may not be going well. The time crunch is real. And he is still going to take a lunch break. And I'm always like, how does this guy do it? It's like he looks stressed about it. And th- but then there's a calm that comes over Derek when it's time to eat lunch. And we still get that done. So that's always yeah. very intriguing well, I, to me.
1: I got to eat. <laughs> and then, it, well, and if, if I don't eat, then I, I I fade as the afternoon goes on. If I if I if skip lunch, eat? Yeah, oh really? If, by, if like... I skip lunch by one thirty, I may as well just go home and that's it. I'm I'm just done.
0: All right, okay. all right. Well, that's that's all we've got for our case in chief. Legal writing. Bosch and Keegan's a little different than the rest of the firms out there because we handle everything from start to finish in house, which I think is going to uh, do serve all of our clients well. And ensure that um, uh, we, we get justice for them. Now, on to the next part of our show here. Is it legal? I just retained
1: Bosch and Keegan.
0: Now what?: Well, you made it the right decision, okay, so for that. Um, so if you just retained Bosch and Keegan, you probably just got done with your initial consultation. What's next? A long process, but Communication with your with with your lawyer is going to be critical. You have to make your appointments. You have to keep your lawyer up to speed with respect to any developments with your health, your treatment status, your work status. Um, but and so, if you communicate with your lawyer, you're going to have a good result. That that I believe. In addition, the the investigation will begin. We will build out the file. We will acquire the medical records. We'll put together the photos. If there's evidence, we'll go get the evidence. If there are witnesses, we'll talk to the witnesses. We'll notify insurance companies. We'll open insurance claims. We'll help you find treatment providers. We'll help you find insurance benefits. And over the course of time, there's generally a calm that comes about. The the initial period after an accident or an injury can be a little bit chaotic. It can feel overwhelming. There's a, there's a level of uncertainty. And once you hire Bosch and Keegan, we're going to help bring calm so that it's not as chaotic. It won't feel as overwhelming because you're going to have a legal representative. We're going to tell you the process. You're going to understand a little bit more about what's to come. You're going to start to have, hopefully, insurance benefits coming in, which will leave you uh, in a more secure financial position. And you have a legal advocate who's going to help you navigate the process, and that process can take a long time. But again, if you communicate with your lawyer and trust the process and trust your lawyer, um, you're going to have a good result. So if you just retain Bosch and Keegan, um, trust your lawyer, trust the process, and um, soon you will have justice, we hope. All right, Derek, I got a question for you. I got hurt in another state. What happens? Can I call Bosch and Keegan? Do you want me to call Bosch and Keegan? What, what happens if I get hurt in another state, but I live here in New York?
1: Sure, call us. Uh, we could set your file up here, uh, try to settle the case with the defendant or their insurance company, even though they're in another state. And uh, we, you know, we've, we've had success in the past with resolving cases without litigation in other states. We can also be admitted what's called pro hoc vice, which which means that we can apply to a court in another state to be admitted there so that we can handle your case in a different state. Um, and we could also work with a local firm in the other state near where your accident happened. Um, you know, we'll, we'll find a top-notch attorney over there to work with, and the legal fee to you would be the same, so there won't be any extra fee to you. It would be us splitting whatever the fee is at the end of the case with the attorney in the other state where your accident happened. Um, so you know, I would say if you're injured in a, in a different state, give us a call. Uh, at the very least, we'll give you, give you advice, and uh, but we'd love to take you on as a client, try to resolve your case with a settlement. If we can't, then we'll find a way to litigate that case in whatever state the accident occurred in.
0: All right, great. Now, let's get local. Derek, what is yep. your favorite winter sport or recreational activity?
1: I kind of like snow tubing. I'm gonna go with snow tubing on that. It's my favorite winter sport.
0: Do you like snow tubing in an organic state, like just a local hill with lots of trees, or do you like snow tubing in a controlled environment, like at a ski resort? <laughs> uh, I'll go with
1: you know both either way. I've done both, but I feel like if I'm at a more like at a, at a resort, well those hills tend to be you know better like like longer slopes, better groomed. If you go like organically, like you know, someone's backyard or on a hill somewhere around here. Um, you know still plenty of fun but those runs don't seem to be as long as as if you're on a you know at a resort or ski slope type place
0: now if i invited you sledding but no tube would you come
1: yeah it's a little go yeah i I like sledding too it's (laughs) it's it's a close second okay but i prefer the tube because like when you hit bumps you don't get like slammed down or you know more or less have like a Softer surface that your eyes, as opposed to like a hard wooden toboggan. But you're I not. Enjoy.
0: You're not adverse to the cold in the winter.
1: No, no, it's, no. I, I kind of like the cold actually.
0: Okay, cool. Got. It.
1: How about you?
0: So my favorite winter sport is definitely skiing. I would say that skiing is sort of my passion outside of the law. I don't do it as much as I should, and admittedly, I think that I have become a little bit scared, and I don't think you should ski scared. I think you have to ski with a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, vigor and uh, recklessness. Um, I tried taking my daughter Ivy when she was three, right in the middle of COVID. No, maybe she was four. She was four. Right in the middle of COVID, You know, basically spent like 800 dollars that morning to like get her all the necessary (laughs) equipment because I know like you can't enjoy skiing in if if you're not warm. So I thought if if it's not gonna work if I don't get her the right stuff. So we stop at Potter Brothers. I'd rent the skis, I'd get her the equipment, then of course we have to buy the lift ticket. But the whole COVID thing is important because they wouldn't let you sit in the lodge. You had Uh, to just park your car get dressed and walk up to the mountain so you you could use the restroom only masked up so by the time i got her i got the stuff on and we walked from the car to the slope she's beat yeah and it was a disaster uh so i'm hoping (laughs) i'm hoping eli will will like it and i'm hoping ivy will give me another chance because i really like skiing i think if we could uh you know like vacation out west or something that would be really cool And also, like, I grew up here in upstate New York, Bel Air, Hunter, Wyndham, all 40 minutes away. I I remember driving with my friends on a snow day off from school or just even a weekend. You could be out there in 40 minutes, and it was great. I loved it. All right, and now, closing arguments.
1: Thanks for listening, and we hope you found this interesting and useful.
0: Yeah. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please consider liking the video or maybe subscribe so that you get some more free legal information, legal education. And if ever you need a personal injury lawyer, you know who to call.